0: Any intimidation, so if if you notice a drop from, uh, from last week to this week in the quality, it's because I'm just a damn nice guy. Okay, that's that's the reason. No, but look, we'd better we'd better pray, shall we? Let's uh let's pray, Father. We have before us this morning a passage from Ephesians that is probably quite familiar to many of us, and for that reason, we would especially pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds helping us to put ourselves aside so that we can meet Jesus in and through this text. It's actually a very simple prayer, Father, but we bring it to you expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you're feeling unwell and you go to the doctor, there are normally three things that you might expect to receive from any medical practitioner. Well, actually, there's four things you'd expect to receive. One is a hefty bill, but that's just a given. (laughs) So we'll put that one to one side. In addition to that, you would expect to receive three things from a doctor. A diagnosis, a prescription, and a prognosis. Diagnosis, a prescription, and a prognosis. Now, a diagnosis is a description of what's wrong. It describes the reason for or the cause behind the illness. The second thing, the prescription tells you what you should do about it. Uh, Modify your diet perhaps, Uh, wear a sling, take certain medicines. The prescription is a course of action designed to help you get better. The third thing, the prognosis, is a statement about what your expectations can be regarding your recovery. How long it should take, to what degree can you expect to improve. The diagnosis, if you think about it, is a statement of what's gone wrong in the past The prescription tells you what to do in the present, now, and the prognosis tells you what's likely to happen in the future. And together, I think these three things form quite a comprehensive statement or description of what's going on. Now, when we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we find the author describing the human situation, or we might call it the human condition, with all the clinical precision of a medical practitioner. What is this human situation being dealt with? Well, I think it's fair to say that you don't have to search too far to notice that there seems to be something wrong with the human race. Quick glance at a Daily Newspaper will confirm that for us. Yes, it's certainly true that human beings can display all the dignity that comes with being made in the image of God and at times can achieve exceptional things perform great acts of kindness and goodness. But at the same time, we also seem to exhibit a persistent dysfunction that, if confronted honestly, I think is often quite a frightening reality for us. There was a time when Western society assumed that the human race was on a triumphant upward march. This was certainly the case at the beginning of the 20th century. Everyone was very optimistic. At the time, the newly discovered theory of evolution was being applied not just biologically, but sociologically, leading people to think that human society was evolving and constantly improving. Advances in medical science and industrial development supported those assumptions by delivering a quality of life that no one at that time had ever dreamed of before. One British Prime Minister from that era captured the spirit by making his government's election slogan on and on and on and up and up and up. I think that was Stanley Baldwin. But then two world wars in fairly quick succession involving unspeakable atrocities shattered that illusion and left in their wake a Cold War, an arms race, corporate greed, global poverty, AIDS epidemics, ecological disasters, wars and the rumours of wars. So that many young people today are not asking what will the future of the world be. They're asking will there be a future for this planet and for the human race. There is something wrong, I think. And as a race, humanity seems just to be strangely self-destructive. I mean, why is it that after all these centuries we can't live together in peace? Why is it that almost every significant technological advancement gets turned into a weapon for destructive purposes in some way? Why is it that although there's more than enough food on the planet to feed every human being several times over, billions are still starving? Here in Australia, we live in a a beautiful, prosperous, privileged, very well-resourced corner of the world, yet we have growing crime rates, growing divorce rates, growing suicide rates. What's wrong with us? Now, some would diagnose the problem of the human condition, I think, in terms of ignorance. And therefore, their prescription, their answer, would be education. If we can just offer enough people enough education, that will address this human dilemma. Now, I'm a very strong advocate for education. I've been involved in it all my life. But I actually don't believe it's alone going to solve our problems. There's an old saying that says, if you educate a devil, you don't get an angel. What you get is a clever devil. Someone with even more capacity to do evil in more devious ways. And if education alone is going to solve all our problems, then surely universities should be the most moral place in our society, the most caring, compassionate, ethically upright place. I don't think that's the case. Others would say that the problem is poverty. Okay, if we just had enough money and food to go around and everyone had their basic needs met, the planet would be a much better place. Now, I, I must very carefully say that, of course, addressing the issue of, of poverty has to absolutely be a global priority. Um, but again, I'm not sure that it's going to solve the problems. The standard of living might be better in affluent countries, but are people happier? Are they safer? Are families stronger in that circumstance? Others think the problem is political. We just had a particular type of government. If only a particular party was in power, then our problems would be solved. You don't have to go back too far to the days, and I can remember this from my childhood, when the communists would say it's the capital, capitalists that are the problem. The capitalists would say it's the communists that are to blame. Neither capitalism nor communism is doing particularly well these days. One of the common tendencies I've noticed is that when people try to identify what's wrong with the world, they inevitably point their finger towards a group that they don't belong to. It's their problem. The fault lies with them. Whether them refers to a political party, as I've mentioned, a racial group, people from a particular place. And I mean, maybe there's something in that one, I don't know. But around state of origin time, I tend to feel that all the problems of the world originate in New South Wales. (laughs) (laughs) Or we think that the fault lies with with the old people or the young people. The men say it's the women's fault. The women say it's the men's fault. There's always a category of people to blame, but strangely it's a category that we're not a part of. (laughs) Now, according to Ephesians chapter 2, all of these diagnoses are inadequate. None of them go deep enough to get to the heart of the problem. For the heart of the problem is here defined as the problem of the heart. Ephesians 2 opens by stating that the fundamental problem of the human race is perhaps best described by a little unmentionable three-letter word that according to many we really shouldn't be using anymore, but the text uses the word sin. In many ways it's difficult to talk about sin in this day and age, isn't it? I'm sure you've probably encountered that. Uh, working as a chaplain in a secondary school, working as a pastor in a church, I've certainly found that to be the case. For the simple reason that you know, many people today are socialised into believing that there is no such thing. Psychologists, sociologists, lawyers, geneticists are all telling us in different ways that when we do bad things, it's simply not our fault. Our upbringing... Our social conditions, external injustices, even our genetic urges are to blame. But not us. We don't carry responsibility. It's not my fault. Don't you know, label me a sinner. I'm actually the victim. I'm a victim of my circumstances. I'm a victim of my culture. I'm a victim of my genes. We are living in what theologian Alan Mann calls a sinless society. Which is actually an awful place, because on the one hand we're told there's no such thing as sin, but on the other hand we all know deep down there is something profoundly wrong, not just in society, but in our more honest moments in ourselves as well. I think I shared last year in a Principles Hour about a conversation I had with a friend who once said to me, he said, Simon, you know when I was 18 years old I was ready to change the world. Now that I'm 40, I realise I'm flat out just controlling myself. He'd come to the realisation that the biggest battle in life is not to fix the problems out there, but first to fix the problems in here. And there are two words used in this passage to describe the problems in here that we might extrapolate into the human race. One is the word sins, the other is the word trespass. Now the word used for sins in Greek is hamartia, and it simply means to miss. You shoot an arrow at a target and it completely misses. That's what hamartia means. This is what Aristotle, Cicero, to some degree, I guess, Augustine, Albert the Great, uh, Aquinas, many philosophers and theologians have picked up on in articulating theories of what we call natural law. The idea that goodness or holiness is the completeness or the perfection of what God intended for this world when he created it. Sin simply falls short of that. Romans 3.23, Paul says, As you would know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So often we think of the sinners in our society as you know, these really bad people, the murderers, the drug dealers, the pedophiles. But Paul seems to suggest it, it doesn't matter how far short we fall. The thing is that... We miss the mark. It's a bit like three people trapped on a small piece of land, surrounded by a deep, rugged chasm, and they have to leap across the chasm to get to safety. Now, the first man is quite overweight, a little bit like me. Off a short runoff, he jumps as far as he can, but really just manages to tumble over the edge of the chasm where he falls to his death on the rocks below. The second person is fitter and takes a longer run up, managing to leap about halfway across before they too plummet to their death but the third person is a woman a superb athlete in peak physical condition and off the longest run up that she can possibly take she leaps across but her flailing fingers just miss grabbing a hold of the the ledge on the other side and she too unfortunately meets her end on the jagged rocks below regardless of how far across they got the result was the same for each they fell short regardless of how good or bad we might seem to be We all fall short of our creator's intentions. We miss the mark. And one day we will need to encounter the reality of our harmatia, of our sins falling short. The second word used for sin is the Greek paraptoma, the meaning of which is, I think, quite familiar to us. To trespass. To go somewhere we're not permitted to go. To do something we're not permitted to do. There's a yard, there's a fence and a sign that says no trespassing. So what do we want to do? We want to climb the fence. We want to go into the yard just because somebody's told us not to do it. And I think that these two images of sin provide quite a complete picture. One of the words is passive. The other is active. Falling short or missing the mark is something we fail to do. Trespassing is something we actively do. We deliberately do. But Ephesians 2 takes all this one step further because it not only describes the disease of sin, but it further develops the diagnosis by identifying a number of symptoms. You will always be able to tell from a diagnostic point of view where sin is present because, according to Ephesians 2 at least, it will be evidenced by two things, by death and by division. Now, the rest of our passage today, um, verses... Uh, Up to verse 10 is really about death, and next week, as we look at the next passage, we'll be thinking more about division and and how that is worked out of uh, the choices that that we make that are contrary to God's purpose. But the the death that's spoken about in the rest of this particular text is, of course, a spiritual death. It says, and I quote, uh, You were dead, this is just from verse 1, through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. And then it goes on to talk about three sources of temptation which lead us into the sin which kills us. Colloquially, colloquially um, referred to as uh, the world, the flesh and the devil. I, I really apologise. I I'm, I'm just I seem to have a collection of evangelistic cliches here. I feel like I'm channelling Billy Graham or something as, I, as I'm referring to this. But it's as though the text is saying some of these self-diminishing sins were initiated by patterns of behaviour that you caught from the world around you. And if you've ever watched a young person caught up in negative peer pressure, you know the power that there is in an expectation to conform to the standards, the values of the world around us. But a second source of temptation, says the text, comes not from outside us but from within us. The passions of our flesh is the phrase that's used. And I think it's true that many of the temptations come from inner urges and desires that actually war against our soul in a variety of ways. Finally, the text identifies a third source of temptation, evil forces at work beyond the influence of human society, and it uses the language, and again I quote, the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work amongst those who are disobedient. And if you've read Walter Wink, you'll probably translate that in terms of the pervasive and destructive influence of social institutions that create a spirit or a culture that ends up becoming more than the sum of its parts and uh, ends up working destructively in people's lives. And that's a valid reading, I think, of that. But I think it also equally refers to the embodiment and the personification of evil that Jesus encountered when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And these three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are all sources of temptation that lead to sin, which in turn leads to death. Now, a dead person, generally speaking, is someone who is unresponsive and cold and hard. If we had a A cadaver beside me here, I could prod it, I could poke it, I could yell at it, I could do whatever I wanted, but it would make no response to me whatsoever. And the same is true of a spiritually dead person. They are unresponsive, they're cold, they're hard in relation to God. They might be the nicest person you've ever come across, they might be the life of the party, but if you try to talk to them about Jesus Christ, all you get is a cold rebuff or perhaps a hard resistant stare. They are completely unaware of, or perhaps just indifferent to, anything metaphysical, anything transcendent. They are unresponsive. And the idea of spiritual death and the need for spiritual life, of course, are recurring themes that we find again and again throughout the text of the Bible. John records Jesus as saying that the transition from a secular existence to a life of faith is very much like being reborn, unless a person is born again. They cannot see the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus. And if you think about it, when a baby's in utero, occasionally it gets impacted by the outside world, doesn't it? I mean, it can probably hear muffled sounds. Uh, People will occasionally poke it and prod it to try and get some sort of uh, response. But by and large, it's completely unaware of and isolated from the world into which it is about to be born. That world is going on without it. And Ephesians here seems to imply there is a world going on beyond our awareness. Of which the average person seems to know almost nothing. Occasionally we're impacted by something from that world. We might catch a glimpse of a reality beyond our own. But as far as living in that world is concerned, it's it's as though we're dead to it. Why does God seem so distant, so far away, so hard to understand? Not because he's elusive or uncaring or distant, but because we're spiritually dead. And the reason for that death is that sin has cut us off from the source of our spiritual life. Sin separates us from God. As that old saying goes, here's another evangelistic cliche, if God feels far away, Guess who moved? It wasn't him. It was us. That's the diagnosis. Now, what about the prescription? Well, in a word, Jesus is the prescription. Jeff said it before. The correct answer is Jesus. And in this case, it it certainly is true. if If we find ourselves in him. In Christ, and uh, that's a little phrase that appears, I think, 23 times throughout the book of Ephesians. In him, in Christ, uh, in Christ Jesus. In him, uh, if we find ourselves in him, then his possibilities, his solutions, his life, his health becomes ours as well. In particular, the text refers to the benefits here for the person who is in Christ And I guess following my analogy, uh, this is not only the prescription but the prognosis as well. If the disease is sin, if the symptom is death, if the prescription is Jesus, then the prognosis is life. Resurrection or a foretaste of that in the new life that Christ offers to us is just the thing you need when you're dead. It says in verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Verse six, it says God raised us up with him, raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Resurrection brings that which is dead back to life. Now, it's, it's good to have a prescription, especially when the disease is fatal, But how do we take this medicine? That's a pretty important question. How do we get into Christ? How do we become connected to this life that Jesus offers to us? Is it a pill? Is it a tonic? Is it an injection? The answer is it's a gift. I want you to imagine that you're sitting in hospital. Sitting on a hospital bed. Your doctor comes in, sits on the edge of the bed and says, Listen, I'm I'm sorry, but I've got some really bad news for you. We've run some tests, and I'm afraid it's the worst possible outcome. You have a fatal disease. Oh, my goodness. And then, you know, those words hitting you like a sledgehammer. You're catching your breath, but he says, but there's a cure. Oh, oh, you start to breathe again. We can treat it, he says. There's hope once more. And you say, well, well, what is it? What is that cure? Is there a new medicine, something I can take? A new form of chemo, perhaps? And then he looks at you, and he reaches around behind him, and he pulls out. A little gift box, all nicely wrapped with a ribbon on top, he holds out his hand and just sits there smiling. <coughs> and you say, well, "What's that? What, what, you know, what, what's this?" And he said, "Well, he says, "That's the cure. It's a gift." And you know you're looking around for the hidden cameras, wondering what's going on, and you say, "Well, come on really, uh, what do I have to do? Is it an exercise regime, a special diet? I don't care what it costs, whatever it takes, but so he just, he still he just sits there holding out this little gift box. Come on, Doc, you say. This is serious. Don't mess with me. And he sits there, smiling, the gift box in his hand. Now, if that scenario strikes you as bizarre, then you can begin to get a feel for how weird it must have sounded in the ancient world, especially to Jewish ears, when the biblical authors started to talk about words like grace and faith. They were used to religions that demanded something from you. Keep the law. Give your tithe. Fast twice a week. Attend worship. Study the scriptures. Surely this is how one connects with God. Through my work, through my effort. That has to be the way. Grace, faith, mercy, a gift of God. Come on, let's get serious about this. And I don't think much has changed since ancient times. I would almost guarantee that if we went out and did a door knock of the people who lived in Flower and asked them the question, How does a person get to heaven, or how do you get right with God, if we had first found out whether they believe in God or not? I guarantee that most people would say, by doing good deeds, by living right, by being good enough. And Ephesians says that's rubbish. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And even that faith isn't what you've mustered up, it's not what you've created within yourself. That's a gift of God to you as well. You see, God's not going to have anyone boasting when they get to heaven. Can you imagine it, getting to heaven and all of a sudden someone waltzes in and says, Hi, I'm here under my own steam. (laughs) Imagine how painful it would be imagine how painful it would be spending eternity with a whole lot of self-righteous people who had got to heaven because of their own righteousness. It would be miserable. No, God's presence is the one place where God completely and perfectly sets the terms. He says, actually, because of your hamartia, because of your paraptoma, your sins and your trespasses, no one deserves to be in my presence. To be sure I love you and I want you with me, but no one earns their way here because you simply can't. You're not good enough. Everyone's fallen short of God's glory. It's only because I'm rich in mercy and because of my great love for you that you have any hope at all. I love that word mercy. A friend of mine once took a photo of me back in the days before cameras had uh, phones had cameras in them. You know, they used to have little digital cameras. It was a little box and... And you'd you'd take the photo and then you'd look at the back. So he took a photo of me. He's looking at the back and I yell out, hey, does it do me justice? To which he replied a little too quickly, I think. Simon, it's not justice you need, it's mercy. (laughs) But that's what mercy means. It's when we're dealt with not according to what we deserve, but according to what we don't deserve. And what we don't deserve is God's grace. A couple of years ago, I preached a sermon at Tawang Uniting, and after the sermon, I was shaking hands with people at the door, and this person came up to me and said, Simon, I've just figured out what grace is, which I should have been excited about, but I hadn't been speaking about grace at all, so I was a little <laughs> disappointed. But anyway, he said, it's one-way love, isn't it? And I thought, I like that, one-way love. It's when we weren't loving God that he loved us, one-way love when we were spiritually dead, when we were cold and hard and completely indifferent to him, that he loved us. He reached down and he touched our hearts. And I love that scene at the end of Bruce Almighty. And this is a spoiler if you haven't seen the movie, but if you haven't, it's just too bad because uh, you should have. Um, and, and so Morgan Freeman, who plays God, has Bruce there like in heaven. And uh, Bruce has died and and he's he's in heaven, and finally he learns what he's supposed to about life and about faith and about God and about himself. And so God, Morgan Freeman, decides to send him back to finish off his life, send him back to earth. And he does it by taking his two fingers and just touching his chest. Do you remember that scene? Mm. And it's like the boom, boom, the paddles. You know those paddles that you use when you're resuscitating someone after a heart attack? And, and Bruce goes, whoa. That wasn't very comfortable, and then God does it again. And then the next thing Bruce knows, he's on a hospital bed, and someone's with him, paddles above him, bringing him back to life. I wonder if God has ever reached down into your life and touched your heart, and all of a sudden, boom, boom, there's a heartbeat. It's like you've woken up to a whole new reality. Or maybe for you, it's been a slower process of mouth-to-mouth that has brought you to life God's spirit gently breathing into you one breath after another, patiently, persistently, over time, allowing you to start breathing yourself and then to wake up and discover who he is and and what's real about the world. It's not by our good deeds that we are saved. It is by grace through faith. But that doesn't mean that good deeds play no part in this whatsoever. It's not good deeds that save us, it's for good deeds that we are saved, according to the text. Good works won't get us into heaven, but they should be the result of our faith. And if it's a real faith and a living faith, then we want to express that in some meaningful way. The text says, um, and, and I know I it's actually not there in the, the New Revised Standard Version, but some of the older versions say, uh, we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that an incredible thought? When you finish here, when you leave here, there are certain things that God has prepared in advance for you to do. He's prepared them just for you. Nobody else can do them. And those good works, as you do them in Christ, aware of his presence conscious of his strength they will actually help you become the person that God wants you to be they won't necessarily be easy no one's probably no one will thank you for them but they will likely be one way acts of love just like the sort of love that God has shown to you which will shape you and mold you and contribute to what God is doing in you helping you to become A piece of his workmanship. He's not finished with you yet. We are all, of course, works in progress. And because I haven't had nearly enough evangelistic cliches in this one sermon, I'm going to finish with another. I wonder if you've ever heard Myra Welsh's classic poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand. I think it sums this idea up beautifully. So bear with me for a moment. T'was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bidding, good folks?' he cried. "'Who'll start the bidding for me?' "'A dollar, a dollar. Then two. Only two? Two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice. Going for three, but no.' From the room far back, a grey-haired man came forward and picked up the bow, And then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings the music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said what am i bid for the old violin and he held it up with the bow a thousand dollars Who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We we do not quite understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of a master's hand. And many a person with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin, A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and they travel on. They're going once, they're going twice. They're going and almost gone. But the master comes. And the foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for those times when we try to earn our way to you. Forgive us for our lack of understanding and the the way it, it shows a complete underestimation of who you are, how complete and perfect you are. Lord, when you sit on our bedside and you hold out your hand, offering us the gift of life in Christ, as indeed you do for every one of us, help us not to be so proud that we reject that gift, but... Help us rather to reach out in faith and grasp it with both hands again and anew and afresh every day so that your grace can reach into our lives to give us new life and start us living for you the life that you've prepared in advance for us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.